Hi, I'm Derek Pitts, and welcome to The Curious Cosmos. Obviously, I love to share my knowledge and appreciation about space, and if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you do as well. My guest today is an educator whose passion for learning about space is infectious, and whose career has taken so many turns beyond what the job of educator may have you expect. Vivian White has been an astronomy educator with the Astronomical Society of the Pacific for the last decade, at least. She uses her degree in physics, a Dobsonian telescope, and a fascination with human learning to inspire people to look up in wonder at the riches of the night sky. She currently designs activities for amateur astronomers engaged in public outreach through the NASA Night Sky Network, a coalition of over 400 astronomy clubs across the U.S. She's also the principal investigator, read team leader, for the NASA-funded Eclipse Education Program, Eclipse Ambassadors Off the Paths, which will prepare 500 communities off the central paths of the back-to-back -back solar eclipses this year and next year, 2024. And her first book, The Total Skywatcher's Manual, was released in 2015. Welcome, Vivian. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. It's a real pleasure to have you with us to talk about some of this stuff today, Vivian. I know that we have worked together before in a number of different settings, and I'm going to start out by asking you about your title at Astronomical Society of the Pacific, Director of Free Choice Learning. Can you tell us a little bit about Astronomical Society of the Pacific and what free choice learning is. Absolutely. I chose that title myself. I really love the idea of being able to choose what type of learning you're doing outside of the school setting. So at the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, we have been around for a very long time, 135 years now, I believe. And we work with communities all the way from the very youngest three to five-year-olds who are just learning the pre-astronomy concepts all the way through college graduates and amateur astronomers and lifelong learners. So my joy is all of the things that you don't have to go to school to learn, which is pretty much a lot. <laughs> There's so many things that you don't have to go to school to learn. It turns out um, if you've ever had to try and fix your washing machine, you know that you can YouTube it. You can find out a lot of information in a lot of different and unique ways. And one of the things that I love best about astronomy is there's a huge amateur astronomy community. And we've worked together to learn and teach each other and also to share what we love with the general public. So the free choice learning piece just has to do with how we get to choose the places and the types of information that we get to learn in our lifetimes. and. When they asked me uh, when I got a director position, you can kind of figure out based on who you're working with what you'd like that director position to be. And I said, I think free choice learning pretty much sums up who I work with and what I love to do. I would think that, you know, for astronomy, astronomy is one of those topics that many people think you really do need a lot of education to be able to get into or to understand. But in this case, you know, the idea of free choice learning I mean, how does that fit with astronomy? Oh, I mean, the sky is open to everyone. It's a lovely resource that we all have access to. Less so in some of the cities because of all the light pollution, but we all can look up and wonder at the same questions that humans have been wondering about for time immemorial. Since before we have recorded history, we've been looking up and thinking about these things. And it's an incredible laboratory that we all have access to at some level. If you're in the middle of a city, you can get online and look at remote telescopes. 
Remote telescopes actually are telescopes that are set at remote locations where they robotically observe the night sky, but robotically at your direction. So you just sign up and become a member at one of the locations that allows you to do this, and then you get dedicated time where you operate the telescope through your computer and ask it to photograph regions of the sky you'd like to have imagery from. If you are out in the far country, you can watch meteor showers and, and learn about what brings those through our path in the solar system. There's so many ways to engage in different astronomy activities that while college teaches you an awful lot, and I got a degree in astronomy and physics, I feel like I have learned the most based just on my own curiosity in the world. And you don't need much more than an internet or a good book or a person who knows quite a bit more than you do to help guide you on the way, which I have used all of those things. That's pretty fascinating. I mean, for a topic that often is framed in a way that sort of makes it inaccessible, your description of it is that it's totally accessible. Just the idea of people learning outside of a formal setting, particularly for astronomy, makes it seem as if rather than feeling like you have to be a mathematician to do this, all you really need to do is pursue your curiosity about the night sky. Indeed. I think if you follow your own curiosity and really follow it up until you get the answer to a question that you're asking, if you keep asking, how does that work? And why is that like that? And can you prove it to me? I think that those are really valuable questions that will lead you on an incredible journey of exploration if you just take the time to get to the bottom of the answers. I actually um, didn't go to college out of high school and ended up waiting tables and working lots of odd jobs. And it was those kind of questions that eventually led me back to community college and then on to a four-year university. But I didn't have any of that math background when I first started. I had to start at Algebra 1 when I went to college uh, because it hadn't been part of what was interesting me as a teenager. But as I started thinking about things and reading more books, I actually came to it outside of school, which is what speaks to me about that free choice learning piece. Well, let's go back here, though. So what is it that fascinates you about the universe? Oh, gosh, what doesn't fascinate me about the universe? I feel like the questions are endless, right? There are more questions than there are answers, which I love. I will never be out of a job <laughs> <laughs> studying astronomy. There's a lot that we don't know. <laughs> Indeed. I love the big questions. Where do we come from? Are we alone? Where are we going? What are we doing here? <laughs> uh, okay, that last one, it doesn't answer quite as well. <laughs> but you get peeks at the answers to those questions. I don't know that there's any short solutions to them. But I think it gives you a unique perspective on where you are at any given time. So I could certainly get a parking ticket and realize, oh, gosh, this is going to ruin my day, maybe my week. And then I think to myself, you know what? I am sitting here on this tiny little rock orbiting kind of an average star. In the scheme of things, this is not that big of a deal. I think I'm going to make it through that parking ticket. <laughs> yeah. Gives me a good perspective. So in talking about questioning the universe and, you know, engaging people around astronomy, how well do you think people are connected to science, generally speaking? That's an interesting question. In the way that science works, we're maybe not as connected as a society. That 
iterative process of asking questions and changing our understanding as we are presented with new information. I think the way of science is less well known than maybe some of the rules of science, mm. if you want to call them that, or advancements of science. I think those are pretty well known in general. You know, does everyone know how big a cell is or how large the Milky Way is? No. And those are maybe not quite the points. If I could snap my fingers and have everyone understand something, I think it would be more the process of science as opposed to the facts and figures that I feel like we could just look up. Right. That process could be applied to so many different things. So right now, though, how do we teach that process to make it more interesting for people, more engaging for people? <laughs> you know, I had dinner with a friend the other day and he said something and we didn't know the answer so we pulled out what we called the wonder killer which was our phones um, <laughs> <laughs> and so every time there's a question now it's very easy to say oh i can find the answer to that mm. those answers do often exist out in the world what i think we might want to start practicing more is huh i don't know how could we figure that out that question of how do we get there, even if we don't get to the right answer the first time? We can always pull out our phone and find out, you know, the distance to something. But what about if I knew, okay, what is the distance to Saturn? Well, I don't know, but I do know the distance from Earth to the Sun, and I know how long it takes the Earth to orbit the Sun. Could I figure out hmm. how far away Saturn is from some of the things that I do already know, for example? That's a pretty simplistic example, but I think that way of thinking, we could use some more practice with that. And it doesn't take much. Sometimes it just takes thinking about it. Right. Keep developing that skill set of chasing down those questions. The process of science is based on, you know, presenting what you've been able to observe and then what you've been able to theorize about this with the sense that you're going to ask your peer group to help you figure this out as you try to chase down, you know, what might be wrong with the research you've done. It's, it's meant to be open like that. Absolutely. So Vivian, you've traveled the world chasing astronomy experiences, I'm sure, like solar eclipses and a few other things here and there. I was wondering if you'd tell us about some of your extraordinary experiences teaching in some of the world's out-of-the-way places. For example, Bhutan. For reference, Bhutan is in Asia. It's right up against the Himalayan mountains, south of Tibet, east of Nepal, and north of Bangladesh. How do you come to teach astronomy to monks in Bhutan? It sounds like a different life when I hear someone say it. I feel like I have the best job in the whole wide world. Wait, is there a Bhutanese space program that we don't know about here in the United <laughs> States? Or If there is, I also don't know about it. No, <laughs> okay. it is not that. In fact, I have been working with Buddhist monks and nuns for over 10 years now as part of the Science for Monks and Nuns project that was started um, out of the Exploratorium here in San Francisco, but has now been taken over by the Tibetan community in India. And they are running an amazing program that teaches astronomy and not just astronomy, they also teach uh, neurobiology and biology and chemistry and all of the sciences to Buddhist monks and nuns, uh, predominantly in India, but also in Nepal and Bhutan. So I have been over to teach the monks four times now, and each time I learn so much more than I'm afraid that I teach, <laughs> <laughs> um, because their perspectives on science 
are very different. In some cases, this will be their very first exposure to those questions, those ideas of science in the way that we think of them. So while their regular work that they do is very, very logical and analytical, they are looking at these old texts and they are thinking very critically about what they might mean for themselves. Most of this is inner work that they're doing, mm. which is very different than looking at the universe, for example, through telescopes, right? But they, funny enough, employ some of the same methods that we do in science. So it's been wonderful to see where those overlap. They have been really, really wonderful at asking, how do you know? That is one of the questions that I get the most from the monks and nuns. If I tell them we are in a heliocentric solar system, it might be their first exposure to that idea wow. because they have been calculating eclipses based on a geocentric worldview with the Earth at the center. And they can calculate eclipses very well with that worldview. But somehow, amazingly enough, they are open to me saying, what if the sun were at the center? Let's see what that would look like. And by the way, in case you're wondering the reason why they're calculating eclipses, it's because of their interest in expanding their worldview. Their understanding of the cosmology of the universe includes solar eclipses, so they can calculate them, and that helps them understand their place in the universe as well. So if you're wondering how this new information affects their religious beliefs or their faith, it doesn't. It's just that they've now added to their body of knowledge and their religion and faith continue to supersede everything else. And every time they say, prove it, show me. And so we have to go through and do these activities that show what that looks like, like how I could prove it's a Copernican revolution <laughs> in some cases yes. where you're pulling someone out of a one worldview and plopping them in another and seeing what the differences are. And, you know, if I have done my job well, they will at least be open to that idea because ideas don't change overnight. If you have been working with one set of information for your entire life, just throwing out a new idea doesn't make it true. <laughs> But it does plant a seed and it's been really fabulous. I've kept up with many of the monks and nuns over the years and just to see their journey through science and how this little seed was planted in different ways. And some of them have become science leaders in their mm. uh, monasteries and nunneries. So it's been, it's an incredible program. Boy, that's amazing. I feel very lucky. Yeah. Uh, so this says to me though, that you have a degree in physics and astronomy and what you just told us about is vastly different from what most people would think of as the career path for someone with a degree in physics and astronomy. I mean, it, this isn't a university professorship. This isn't even a high school teaching. This is something totally different in which the concept of teaching monks about science simply doesn't appear in that list of choices of things you might be able to do with such a degree. How do you come to get into this little space where, you know, it's almost like there's a very narrow opening to get through, but the universe on the other side is so enormous? Huh, that is such a cool way of thinking about it. I have never thought of it that way. Um, yeah, it is one of the many ways that you can love space, I think. And sharing it with others is something that's really important to me. You know, I got into this work because I volunteered to teach in a classroom when I was 
not even 30 years old yet. And I started working with a teacher who was really brilliant and had all of these great techniques for engaging kids. And I was so inspired. I was doing some research on cataclysmic variables, things that were really interesting and important to me. And then all of a sudden I thought, wow, I would much prefer spending my days talking with people and exposing them to this world as opposed to what I saw as a very narrow window of research that I would be doing for a very long time. And you can get into a question in science that interests you to the point where you really want to spend an awful lot of time figuring it out. And it turns out my question was just, how can I share this more widely? Mm, <laughs> so mm -hmm. I followed the yeses to that. I said yes to lots of different things <laughs> over the years that interested me on that path. And the more widely we can share it, the better. But I'm going to ask you the next question along that line, which is, but why? What is it that you hope that your sharing of this information will do for those you're sharing it with? Why do you want to share it with them? I think it comes back to that conversation piece. I think that the more people we have who can have interesting, intelligent conversations about science, then the more science will benefit from their understanding and their perspectives of the world. I think I have learned so much from the monks and nuns about their perspective and, and what that looks like when they encounter the questions of science that has changed the way I see science. I think that we as scientists need to learn as well from other people who are not currently in the room. Mm -hmm. It's funny, I asked my kid yesterday, I told him I was going to do this interview, and I said, why do you think people need to learn about science? And they said, well, so they can keep up with their kids. <laughs> and I kind of think that that is partially true. Like mm -hmm. we, we are curious, questioning humans, mm -hmm. and we will always be questioning what else is there. So in order to keep up with our kids and what comes next <laughs> in this world, the more curiosity and allowing for that big picture thinking that we can encourage, I think the better humans we will become. Nicely said, becoming better humans. I mean, we're here we are on this little mote of dust. And I often think about the possibility, maybe the slim possibility, that there aren't any other creatures out there anywhere. And I think of us as being the ultimate expression of the universe's capability to create. And I often wonder what we can do to, you know, meet that obligation a little bit better than we do right now. So true. And how lucky we are to be on this really beautiful green planet filled with life and oceans. And I was looking at the sunset last night and it was just gorgeous. And I thought, if an alien just plop down here right now. How amazed would they be at this, these colors that you, you know, the blue of the ocean and the white of the clouds. And what if the alien comes and they don't see invisible light? What if those are not the colors that they're gonna see? Oh my gosh, what if they yes. see in infrared light, what would it look like to them, <laughs> you know? And those are the kind of questions that get you thinking about everything from bees to, 
aliens. Oh, sure. Right. And so much more <laughs> to learn from somebody else's experience of seeing it. Yeah. Totally. So now speaking of this kind of thing, I'm going to go back to this other thing that I was going to ask you before, and it's about designing activities. And in this case, I'm curious about the difference between teaching adults and teaching kids. You have a, a small human that you teach a lot, and you also teach across this broad spectrum of adults. Can you walk us through some of the experiences you've had of teaching kids versus teaching adults? Yeah. There are strengths that both adults and kids bring differently to a concept. Kids also, they often have this, um, if they are excited about space, for example, and they're five or seven years old, and they know all the names of all the moons, well, maybe not all the moons anymore, of <laughs> places like Jupiter, <laughs> right. or, what yes. do we have to do, 92 right. all 92, you have to know exactly. all 92 names. <laughs> and in case you were wondering... The names of those 92 moons are Metis, Adrastia, Amalthea, Dia, Thebe, Carpo, Io, Valetudo, Europa, Eupori, Ganymede, Euphemia, Uartine, Hastelthio, Thosea, Laura, But they might, they might have already committed that most recent set to memory because there's this phenomenon that they call the island of expertise, where they can learn all of this terminology because their brains are great at remembering new words. They've been doing it for the last five or seven years nonstop. But what they realize is that at this age, they don't, of course, how could they have the connective concepts that bring those together? So while kids might know all of the names or have a very easy time memorizing facts, they often don't have the scaffolding to kind of understand how that works together. So I think that honestly, just pulling on adults and children's different strengths can be really lovely and supporting them in different ways where they might need it. So while adults might want to know how far or how many or <laughs> that kind of thing, explaining them in a way that gives context will help both adults and kids to better understand a concept. So you know, I, I try and teach to children as though they are fully thinking capable humans because they are <laughs> what they may be missing in experience. They have me beat on memorization and facts in many cases, right? They have, they have a lot of great access to neural pathways that I no longer possess. <laughs> you can teach in similar ways, just recognizing that we all have those different strengths and the adults often might be asking questions that they think are very important. The how far, how many, how big, those kind of questions. But even if I gave them an answer in light years or kilometers or miles, unless I give context for both adults and kids, it's not going yeah. <laughs> to matter to them yeah. because those concepts that we talk about in astronomy can be so big that you need to make models in your head. You need to come up with more engaging ways to answer questions and talk about concepts. So I, I find not a lot of difference in the way that I end up teaching from fifth grade all the way through adults. I think there's a lot that can be learned in similar ways. 
maybe you've helped me understand something about myself. Maybe that's the reason why I've stopped memorizing distances uh, huh? and all those exact number things, because that hasn't helped me as much as creating the models in my head has helped me. Exactly. Yeah. Right? If I know that there are 30 Earth distances between the Earth and the Moon, I don't have to remember that distance. I can calculate it pretty easily, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that concept helps me much more than it would knowing the exact distance, which is just a number. It's just a number. It doesn't have a lot of meaning by itself. But 30 Earth distances, wow. Right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I can make a model at any scale in that way, right? Speaking of things like that, What's your favorite sky observing experience you like to share with other sky watchers? Well, anything that changes is pretty awesome. So certainly moon phases, watching the moon over the course of a couple of nights, or if you have a telescope, watching how Jupiter's moons move. I love Ooh. measuring moons over the course of an evening, for example, and people will keep coming back and we try and make little sketches or sometimes they even write on their hands like what that looked like at eight o'clock, what that looked like at 10 o'clock. Things like that. Uh, right now, I am making sky observations just with my hands. I hold my hand at arm's length, and then I've been measuring the distance between Jupiter and Venus as they come closer and closer together. You can see them right now in the western sky just after sunset. Well, maybe not now, but Venus and Jupiter are frequently visible in either the pre-dawn or post-sunset skies. If you want to find out when Venus and Jupiter are visible in your location, visit your local planetarium. And we just go out, you know, not every night, but when we remember and it's clear out and we notice and measure the distance. I've been taking pictures of my hand so I can see and remember over time what that looks like. Well, wait, that's not even sophisticated equipment you're using that. That's just your hand exactly. for measuring sizes and things. Right. If you hold your pinky and your thumb all the way out as far as you can and you extend your arm away from you and you close one eye, that's about 25 degrees that you're measuring right there. So you can measure over time how the distance between those two planets in the sky changes. It's been really fun just to notice. I think that's something we've done for millennia, right? Can I tell you a quick story I just heard yeah. that I thought was fascinating? Mm -hmm. An amateur archaeologist just made a pretty interesting hypothesis that's got the archaeology world all of us in that they were looking at the caves in Europe and the cave paintings of all those animals where, that you would see, you know, 30,000 years ago, 40,000 years, a long time ago, early, early, much earlier than we had any sort of notation. And this gentleman, I think he's from England, noticed that they had these little dots on the animals and dots and lines. And those, you know, he was not the first to notice that, but he was the first to come up with this idea in the, its current manifestation that maybe that was how many moon cycles had happened between a certain point and, for example, when they are breeding or when they are having Ooh. babies or when they migrate through a certain area. Wow. So they ran all these tests to correlate over 400 different cave paintings. And it is a possibility. What a cool hypothesis that this is actually a notation of time and a specifically useful notation of time to these early humans. But 30,000 years ago. Way before we thought that there was any sort of like early writing happening. But this was a pretty amazing way of measuring time in an abstract way by moon cycles. 
fascinating. That's tying together so many complex concepts. Yeah. I mean, you're recognizing the motion of the moon through the sky, and you're keeping track of this specific event separate from all other events, and you hold it with a value that's different from other events. Yes. And then you multiply this over a much longer period of time. And most importantly, you share it. And then you share. In a way that other people can understand when they show up what's going on. You know, I think that that is... That's that piece. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) You realize, of course, that this is very similar to the gold plaque on the Voyager spacecraft that has the symbols, the binary symbols that are used to measure distance. (laughs) You know, thinking that an advanced alien species would be able to recognize this because of the commonality of the science that's involved. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Exactly. <laughs> we are sending out our cave paintings. That's wild. <laughs> into the universe. That yes. is really uh, wild. Yeah. Either that or the aliens came here and brought that to the cave dwellers <laughs> and let them use it. So now it's being used in reverse. Okay. <laughs> it came and went and came and went. Okay. I would not rule it out, although you've got to have some serious evidence if you're going to pull off a claim like that. <laughs> well, let's let's just go back to the cave paintings. I think that is miraculous. That is just yeah. incredible. And it's just been published fairly recently. So there's a lot of work that science now has to do. It's a hypothesis. I love that. Yeah. You know, that's a yeah. really great new hypothesis that could give us insight into where we come from. That's yeah. really pretty cool. I like that a lot. That's a great little story. So you also specialize in uh, making astronomy accessible to non-traditional audiences. Are you teaching them or are they teaching you? Is it going, I'm (laughs) sure it's going both ways, but bringing people to the table that have not traditionally had a place at the table or? Yeah, so non-traditional audiences, yeah, who have not had a place at the table. That is an important piece of the work for sure. I think about some of the work we've done recently with Girl Scouts and creating a space where science can be a welcoming environment to women and girls, I think is an important one. Mm-hmm. We've worked to create some videos that help astronomy clubs in particular make a more welcoming space for women and girls. You know, as excited as we as amateur astronomers, and I consider myself an amateur astronomer, as excited as we are about star parties, not everyone feels that way, right? For lots of different reasons. It might not feel comfortable to everyone to go out into a dark sky site in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of people who you don't know. And there are lots of reasons why amateur astronomy has not been as diverse in race and age and gender as we would love it to be. So we're trying to make that a more welcoming space. And part of how we do that is do the work on ourselves to make what we do welcoming in a very explicit way, right? Yeah. When I think of non-traditional audiences and underserved audiences, I often think of urban audiences as part of that. Those audiences 
for whom the sky is not easily seen because of additional you know, light pollution that comes with cities these days. And there are those non-traditional audiences because of you know, either racial issues or economic issues that don't have connections to astronomy clubs or other agencies that do this kind of activity. But I also consider that to be those people who just can't see the sky because the sky's too bright where they live at night. So what do we do? Do we build more planetariums? Or do we turn off the city lights to reveal the night sky every now and then? Right. I think that we are smart enough to hopefully do both. I hope people go to lots of planetariums because they're a wonderful way to experience the sky. But I also think that we can actually just use smarter lighting as opposed to brighter lighting. <laughs> There's a lot of work that's been done by the International Astronomical Union on smart lighting solutions where as opposed to having bright street lights that shine in every possible direction that they just shine down so that you're not lighting up the night sky and you're actually using the light effectively to make sure that everyone is safe where they are on the street not up in the sky. <laughs> mm -hmm. So safer lighting isn't always more lighting. You can definitely have safer lighting be smarter lighting and still save your view of the sky. I think that that's really true. There are some places where it's not safe to go out at night. Even if it's fairly dark skies, people don't just feel safe walking around with a telescope or a pair of binoculars at night. So creating spaces in which you can get even to just an urban park where there's a little bit more darkness and you can see the stars a little bit better creating those spaces that are safe and welcoming for everybody is really important. Yeah, I'd love to see some more of that. Yeah. I'm going to read you a little quote from something first, and then, and then I want to ask you, what is the one astronomical thing you would love to see that you haven't seen yet? But let me read you this quote of all the things that you could possibly see. This is a quote from a movie review in the Chicago Sun-Times written by Roger Ebert. And he said, I am reminded of the Isaac Asimov story, Nightfall, about a planet where the stars were visible only once in a thousand years. So awesome was the sight that it drove men mad. We, who can see the stars every night, glance up casually at the cosmos and then quickly down again searching for a Dairy Queen. <laughs> oh, what? I love that. <laughs> and I love the Nightfall story. I would encourage anyone listening who yeah. has not read Nightfall to take a quick read. It is absolutely magnificent. Mm -hmm. What would you want to see, Vivian? Wow, I was thinking so much smaller until you read that. Um, <laughs> I was thinking I would really love to see the Northern Lights. I would love to see the Aurora Borealis. That is something that is on my bucket list without mm -hmm. a doubt. But mm -hmm. if I could go anywhere, I would love to be closer, not too close, <laughs> but much closer <laughs> to the black hole at the center of our galaxy and see what that would look like from the perspective of a planet orbiting a star you know, even in the bulge of our galaxy, kind of towards the center where it's a lot denser, to see what the night sky might look like Ooh, there. That would be something. Yeah. That really would be something, the incredible mass <gasps> of that central black hole distorting yeah. the universe around it. Not too close, though. Not too close, no. Yeah. No no need for spaghettification. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> One of my favorite astronomical concepts. Right, right. And yes... 
that is the proper scientific name, spaghettification. It's what's theorized would occur if an object, namely a human, got caught on the event horizon of a black hole, stretched forever, and to infinite thinness. Well, Vivian, this has really been great. I want to thank you again for taking the time to do this. You know, the work that you do is really important because it allows people to connect, you know, from this planet out into the universe and uh, helps us to become part of the universe. Thanks a lot for sharing some of your experience with us. Derek, thank you so much. It is just always such a joy working with you and talking with you. And well, thanks. I appreciate what you do as well. Thanks. We'll do more of it. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you. As a space educator myself, I can't help but be inspired by Vivian's philosophy around education, her belief that it's accessible to all who are willing to pursue their curiosity. I'm also impressed with her work bringing space education to underserved audiences. As we can hear, Everyone has some level of interest in our universe, and all of our acquired knowledge should be shared with everyone. I also really enjoy listening to her describe her sense of curiosity and wonder. Her willingness to ask questions allow her to explore and be open to discovery. Weren't we all that way as very young children, curious about this new world seemingly filled with wonders at every turn? If we are open enough, we humanity could think of ourselves as very young children in the universe, open to discoveries of the endless wonders of our universe. We'll see you next time. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Matafusco, and Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of Operations is Christopher Plant. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger. And I'm Derek Pitts, Chief Astronomer and Director of the Fels Planetarium at the Franklin Institute, and your host for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening.